Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It is uh, my pleasure now to bring in Eric Schatzker. He, uh, of course, of Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg.com. And uh, he had an interview with uh, BlackRock's chief executive, Larry Fink, on the day that uh, BlackRock uh, reported their results. And I believe Larry Fink is... Hi, Eric. And they said... Um, d didn't he say that he has zero interest in cryptocurrencies because the clientele at BlackRock has not been pounding on the door for crypto? Clients don't want any exposure to crypto, which candidly, Pim, I found interesting on any number of levels, one of which is this, a number of the crypto bulls, let's call it, you could point to Mike Novogratz, you could point to Louis Bacon, Louis Bacon, Dan Moorhead, who runs a cryptocurrency hedge Peter fund Thiel. out in California, think that the next wave in crypto will be the institutional embrace of cryptocurrencies as an asset class. If that's going to happen, BlackRock has to figure into the picture somewhere because it's got $6.3 trillion in assets, yeah. not one dime of which is currently in crypto. And furthermore, when I asked Larry, do they feel the need to prepare for the day when clients do take an interest in crypto? He said, at the moment, no. So, Eric, can you just uh, sort of take a step back and give us the highlights sure. of the interview? Well, let's start with this. BlackRock reported earnings today, and by almost every measure, Lisa, this was a quote-unquote strong quarter. On the surface, it looks great. Earnings per share ahead of analyst expectations, double-digit revenue growth, which if you think about it for a firm of this size is pretty remarkable, margin expansion to a near record level, Assets under management in a flatlining equity market, stable at $6.3 trillion. But I just hit the nail on the head, if you will, flatlining equity market. You've got a yield curve that's flattening as well. Investors are losing interest in financial assets. And as a result, BlackRock's inflows are the lowest since the second quarter of 2016. And that raises a question and possibly a concern for investors. I asked Larry Fink about this. Let's hear him talk about flows. We saw clients worldwide pause. We saw clients are, they're, they're confused. They're confused as to, you know, what direction the markets will go. This uh, is what they're telling you. Absolutely. And I'm traveling everywhere, as you know. Clients are questioning um, the whole foundations of international investing, and that's the foundation of globalization. As we start entering this conversation about trade and tariffs, um, we're seeing clients pull back a little bit. They're, they're waiting to see how does this play out. The backdrop is we have very strong earnings. Mm -hmm. First quarter we represented, we saw very strong earnings throughout the S&P. We believe we're going to see strong earnings in the second quarter. We're going at a rate of $800 billion of stock repurchases. We have record amount of M&A. So the backdrop is we're shrinking the amount of equities. 
We have record earnings, as I said, and yet markets are essentially unchanged. Does that surprise you? Oh, absolutely. If you, if you asked me at the beginning of the year, we're going to have record amount of M&A, record amount of earnings, and record amount of stock repurchases, I would have said the market would be up 10 to 12%. And markets are essentially flat. Now, if you strip out seven... So instead of the S&P 500 at 2,800, it would be more like 3,100. Yes. More importantly, though, if you strip out the seven major tech stocks that have done very well, actually, the breadth is really poor. We're seeing evidence of that. But let's go deep into the flows, because the flows really don't, the the overall macro number doesn't tell you what was going on. We saw a lot of churn in in our index equity business. And that's where we saw the outflows. We had about $13 billion of outflows in, in that area, very low fee things. And we saw, we saw investors pull out of what I would say emerging markets and other areas. And I need to remind you, cash for the first time since 2008, a little before that, is earning you a return. You're earning two plus. Why is that important? You could pause and earn money in the last nine. People can afford to wait. You can afford to wait. And this is a huge change in the marketplace in the last nine years. And people have forgotten about that. You're earning almost two and a half percent now in a money market fund. You know, that's pretty similar to the five year treasury. You could pause. And by the way, equities are not up two and a half percent. So you could be earning money in cash and pausing. Let me get back to the flow. Hang on a second. Should yeah. people be pausing? Does that seem like no, I, I actually, a wise, smart thing to do right now? It depends. If, you're, if your horizon's the next five years, it's probably good to pause. If you're focusing on your retirement and your pension fund, you should never pause. You should be continuing to invest. So it really depends on the time horizon. Um, we saw $4 billion between uh, flows and commitments in um in alternatives, in, in our liquid alts, we had uh, $8 billion in flows in our, in our multi-asset. So if you break out all the flows, right. positive flows. And money's going income, some places, money's yeah, coming out of so, other places. But we've seen huge churn. And if you strip out the index business, which is virtually no, low, 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 low fees, our flows were better than what the headline is. Because we had about, as I said, $13 billion of institutional outflows. And iShares is a very good example of where you saw a real... The ETF business. Yes, in the ETF business. Uh, Pam Lisa, you can hear Larry there talking, as, as he said in his words, about the concerns that investors have. They're confused. They don't know what to make of the trade tensions. They don't want to make about the pullback from globalization. Yeah. But just to put an exclamation mark on this, if we look forward, Larry Fink says... If the United States lives up to its threat and imposes tariffs on an additional $200 billion of Chinese imports, we will have, in his words, a full-blown trade war. And if that becomes the case by the end of August, he anticipates a 10 to 15% pullback in stocks from current levels and a slowdown, if not uh, something close to a, a pause in economic growth come 2019. So, Eric, I also want to give an exclamation point to something else that he said, which is that you can afford to pause 
and you can mm. actually earn something. In other words, you can put your money in cash and actually get something in return before investing in riskier assets. And I thought that it was really compelling. You you pressed him on that, rightly so. And you know, he 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 gave a sort of you know double sided answer. Um, but this is sort of something very much on their minds, right? And this affects their revenues, no? Yes, it does. BlackRock has a business managing people's cash, a business that it has been growing in an effort to become a more diversified asset manager. So while BlackRock would clearly prefer that you put your money in an actively managed mutual fund or into alternatives because those pay the highest fees and are as such the highest margin businesses, they'll be more than happy to take your money as a cash deposit and invest it in short duration fixed income because they make something there. At the same time, and to his point, that's an option for people. When you made nothing on cash, you felt like you had to be invested. This was the reach for yield. You had to generate income. Well, now you can sit on the sidelines effectively and generate some income. Two and a half percent ain't much, slightly north of the rate of inflation. Uh, so there's a real return, well, even if it's skimpy. I do want to just note that two-year treasury yields are at a new post-crisis high today at nearly 2.6%. That is basically double where they were nearly a year ago, Pim. It's, a, it's amazing if you think about it, you know, how quickly in relative terms, short-term yields have risen and the long-term yields remain pretty well anchored. That's why we're talking about the flattening and potential inversion of the yield curve. And I'll just point out that Larry Fink, we talked about that, says... He's not that p concerned about an inversion of the yield curve because in his mind, the conditions are different today. This time is different, if you will, to paraphrase Ken Rogoff. It's not like it was the last time the yield curve inverted before the financial crisis or before that, and as such does not portend a recession. This is all about quantitative easing and interest rate differentials on a global basis, a different world. All right. Well, you say different world. Let me just mention that we're waiting for a different world, which is that uh, President Donald Trump and uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia are scheduled uh, to appear before the press uh, in, uh, in as much as they've had this meeting in Helsinki. And uh, we will, of course, bring that to you live. We are awaiting uh, their, uh, the start of that press conference. Um, one of the things, also, I'm not going to get into the thing about yields and taxes and how much you're left with and all that. That's another story but uh if he can't figure out what's going to happen to the stock market i mean remember the, the the comment that he made having to do with gee you know earnings are pretty uh, good no, no, right? no that was that so uh, i know yeah. what you're i know what you're getting at uh absent trade tensions yeah that's what he thinks would have happened in other words if donald trump weren't saber rattling and it's more than saber rattling because but he was saber rattling States during the election he was saber rattling last year he it's not like he was elected just last November. back in was, january right? gary Cohn was still in the white house right. there was still an active debate as and to january how, 26 is as when to we how had that the big trump administration would handle trade Cohn is gone right peter navarro is ascendant in the white house we know how trump is handling trade so the picture today is considerably different from what it was in January. In January, it was talk. Now it's real. The United States has unilaterally imposed tariffs on aluminum, steel, Chinese goods, imports from the European Union. Yeah, there were retaliatory okay, tariffs okay. in place. But he said, he, he talked about, he said, oh, well, you know, uh, if it weren't for a couple of technology stocks, the market is basically flat. Worse than flat. Uh, okay, yeah, worse than flat. I don't know. Boeing is up 20%. I mean, it, it's like, I understand his point, but if he can't, tell you what he really thinks is going to happen and have it play out in reality, then 
with all due respect, his job is to make sure that you put your money with BlackRock so that they can manage it as opposed to someone else. Not that you should necessarily keep it in cash because, and I don't, and you'd have to put it at BlackRock to keep it in cash. You can put it in a bank and keep it in cash. Sure, and you, and the, at the reality there is it's low risk. It's not about earning anything. It's about you don't risk your capital, right? Not unless you think the U.S. government is about to go bankrupt. Right, yeah. No, I don't think he thinks that, right? No, he doesn't. Eric, I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, You know that you've been interviewing a lot of luminaries and top uh, investment managers, and I'm wondering if you could just put uh, your interview with BlackRock's Larry Fink into the context of sort of what the broader sentiment is. I mean, if you could sort of say that there is a consensus among the most respected investors who you interview on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. what would it be? That this economic expansion can't last much longer, that we are entering, and we may already be there if we haven't entered it yet, a period of market excess, that the kinds of risks that, are in, that investors are prepared to take in places like credit suggest that uh, people are getting a little out over their skis and that sooner or later something is going to trigger a rise in corporate defaults and then we'll see who's swimming without any trunks on. Uh, this could metastasize in CLOs, for example. Um, that's one place that people consistently talk about a market where there isn't a lot of transparency and they feel as though there's some, if you will, hidden risks. There's a lot of structure, as you know, in CLOs. And so they're not, not exactly the same way, but not unlike what happened in the financial crisis, there is the potential for people who bought the highest yielding, lowest rated instruments to lose an awful lot of money. And when people lose money very quickly, they tend to do very rash things. And that has knock-on effects in other parts of financial markets. So that's one thing people are talking about very consistently. And the other is the potential for a sovereign debt crisis. The U.S. dollar is very strong. It puts an awful lot of pressure on emerging markets, which have dollar-denominated debt. It's very difficult to predict exactly how it will play out, but people have likened it to the Mexican peso crisis of 1994 and to the Asian financial crisis of 1997. The movie never plays out the same way twice or a third time, but those are the parallels that I've been heard, uh, I've heard being drawn. Thanks very much. Eric Schatzker of uh, Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg News, uh, Bloomberg.com, Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg, all things Bloomberg. All things Bloomberg, and uh, really well done. Great uh, interview with uh, Larry Fink, the chief executive for of, uh, of BlackRock. We're going to find out a little bit more about the retail industry right now. In particular, quote, an all-new Gymboree. That is what uh, Gymboree Chief Executive Daniel Griezmann uh, said about their new line after emerging for uh, emerging from bankruptcy. And Daniel Griezmann, uh, Griezmann excuse me, uh, joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York City. Uh, so, Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the new line. Well, uh, this is a culmination of maybe um, 12, 13 months worth of work. Um, uh, the, the team has spent a lot of time talking to our customers, talking to future customers, um, and they told us exactly what they want. And they want uh, clothes that have a high quality, high value, 
great mix and match capability. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty simple. Listen to the customer and they tell you what they want. So that's what we, uh, that's what we delivered and it's now available nationwide and online today. Let me just go back uh, into your history, just so people understand. You come with a lot of experience. Started at Macy's, have a career at Gap, Gap Kids, Coldwater Creek, Tilly's, for example, right? What have you learned from all of those experiences that you can apply to a world where just about every news outlet is now shouting that for the next 36 hours, beginning at 3, uh, 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time, that Amazon is launching its Amazon Prime Day out of the middle of nowhere. What do you, what, how do you reckon with that? Well, I think the years of experience that I have have taught me that you have to stay current, you have to stay relevant, you've got to stay close to your customer, understand what it is that he or she is looking for, and deliver that consistently in a unique and differentiated way. If you do that, uh, you're going to be a winner. And so that's really what we as a company are focused on doing. Amazon is a partner of ours. Amazon, I think, is also the ocean that um, many industries swim in. So it's um, finding the right balance and creating a differentiated experience. So, Daniel, you, you became the chief executive in uh, May 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was right before the company filed for bankruptcy. And this was on the heels of the $1 billion of debt that it had uh, really stemming from the buyout from Bain Capital. A lot of people have blamed private equity firms for the demise of certain retailers, including Jim Barry. What do you think? Well, I think the, um, uh, the process that the company went through to restructure demonstrated the respectful transfer of the ownership of the company from one's ownership, as you said, Bain, to the group of uh, what was what were the lenders to Bain are now the owners of the company. And between the banks and the former owners, the new owners and the company, it was um, all the all the specifics of the restructuring were detailed and negotiated prior to us ever filing. So once we filed, it was a very simple and no, respectful transition. What I'm trying to get at is, do you think that Jim Barry would have been fine, given what you know about the company, after uh, more than a year as chief executive, that it would have been fine if it hadn't been for this buyout? Um, I, I don't know that I could say that. I think I think it... it it would have been fine if it had stayed relevant and current to an ever-changing retail environment and cu- and customer. So, yeah. And just to uh, give a little detail about the current uh, ownership, I believe uh, Carriage House uh, Capital, right? I mean, Searchlight. Searchlight Capital, Brigade, Brigade Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Yeah, the three leads. Yeah. Okay, correct. so they've given you uh, the opportunity to remake uh, the company. Yeah. When you got the job, did you think that you'd be focusing on things like Instagram? Oh, sure. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is how you can touch and reach out to the uh, modern customer today. So, um, yeah, that's I mean, you have someone that say, at Jimbery, whose only job is to focus on all of the social media connections? Yep, you pretty much. You have to. Yeah, that's just the way, that's just the way it is in, in a modern retail. But I think it's incredibly exciting. I, I think this is an amazing time. I've never been more engaged and had more fun in my entire career as, as I'm having right now. The team is doing extraordinary things at the company. 
and um, it, they're they're embracing this new long-term view that the new owners have and the ability to take the risks to do what's right for the company and for the brand and for our customers. Okay, as the mother of two young children, I'm curious, what's the price point that's sort of ideal uh, for children's clothing to, to hit? Yeah, pr- uh, price, you know, we, we asked our customer that in focus groups. I, I conducted um, and visited focus groups around the country, and it was very clear price is only one component of the value proposition for for the customer they also want to know that it it is going to last they're going to be able to wash it it won't fade it won't wear through very quickly it has the ability to mix and match with different things all of those are components to value so it's really a matter of value rather than price well, I got to say, just looking at some of the videos on Twitter of uh, the Made You Smile campaign mm. that you put together, uh, a lot of young children doing um, some pretty amazing uh, theatrical presentations, <laughs> uh, singing and dancing. Congratulations and uh, best Thank luck. You. Thank you very Thank much, you. Uh, Daniel uh, Griezmer. He is the uh, chief executive of Jimboree, working on their turnaround. Retail sales rose for a fifth consecutive month in June. Gains in automobiles and non-store vendors showing strength. Here to tell us about the retail environment is Seema Shah, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Consumer Analyst. All right, Seema, what did you take away from the increase? Overall purchases advancing a half a percent. Prior month uh, was revised up. That's uh, mainly because of uh, automobile sales. Automobiles and I would say gasoline. So gas prices well, have continued yeah, to go up. Good. So, But that's a separate category. So I wanted to point right. out the other area of strength was building materials, which again is not surprising given the weather and that Father's Day falls in June. So that category tends home of related goods tend to benefit uh, for that holiday. So I would say those were the biggest takeaways. The other thing, though, um, I would say is that, you know, some of these categories that were stronger before, like apparel, electronics, they were a little bit weaker uh, this month. Um, But predominantly, I think the gains were from auto-related. So that is, I guess, better for consumer spending. But again, autos is what drove the strength in retail sales all of last year. So I think they're could be some moderation as we go forward. All right. So do you view this as a positive report or a negative report overall? I would say overall, it's a positive report for the broad scheme of spending. But again, I would look at the categories. Gasoline, you have no choice but to buy it. Well, so so if I'm hearing you correctly, there is a question between discretionary spending and the purchases made there versus things that you got to spend money on. You need to fill up your car if you want to get around. You need to pay rent. You need to pay healthcare costs if you get sick. uh, So that those are uh, accounting for a greater proportion of consumers' purchases. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I would say that. And then again, home being that with that secular housing recovery you're seeing strength in those categories but otherwise you're seeing you know deceleration other than what people have to buy at least in this report from and i know that things were they revised up may and may was significantly stronger because april was weaker given the weather so that was a huge rebound in spending all right so based on all of this do consumers have more money to spend on an amazon prime day 
well, Amazon Prime Day, they might, but I think it's, at the end of the day, it's just like Black Friday. There's a lot of goods on there that you probably don't need. You feel like you're getting a deal. The Amazon Prime Day is longer this year. It starts today at 3 p.m. I think it goes for 36 right. hours. So, I Are mean, we so psychologically predisposed now that we will just buy things, even if we don't need them, just because they're less expensive than they were the day before? I mean, that's called human nature. That's called that, the American I think that's dream. The feeling that you're getting a deal, so you're going to get But if you don't need you don't the want... thing in the first place, I mean, why Kim, would you buy it? Honestly, this reminds that's me of a conversation. That's how Target is successful. I mean, honestly, <laughs> this reminds me of a conversation I had with my husband where I used to come home and I'd say, look at this dress. Yeah. Isn't it great? And it was marked down from this, yeah. or it was marked down 40%. Yeah. And he he gave me the same argument. No, no, but that, I mean that's that like you, you know him. like if you don't have if you don't have a kitchen, you know, buying a set of pots and pans isn't exactly no, the I agree, but thing there are do. smaller things, and there's a lot of nice to haves, and I think this inspires people to get it. Or perhaps you could argue there's a few set of people who are going early for Christmas shopping, and they'll get a good deal and they'll okay. save it. But uh, okay, in fairness, we can put aside this argument as yeah. the American dream and challenging it because, frankly, it's always been the case that we've right. been built on consumerism. But I am wondering, you know, about the sort of consumer purchasing power. I was struck yeah. by uh, a statistic showing that real wages have not increased yeah. at all in yes. the past year, even right. as actual straight wages increase. Uh, but the inflation, uh, the cost right. of goods, has gone up equally. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's in your it's in your yeah. deck. I mean, this to me is is really important to take note of, no? Absolutely. And you already mentioned that housing, healthcare and energy costs, that's what they have to spend on. That's going up. But you I think a lot of the purchasing you're seeing is done on credit. You're seeing household well, credit this is levels very interesting. going up. Um and I know that maybe people aren't as much of a dire strait as they were during the recession, but still I think it's notable that there is a change. People are spending more, but the wage there was no wage increase despite the tax cut. Right. Maybe a few people got a thousand dollar bonus here and there, but that's not enough to be a game changer. Right. Most of the money from the tax cuts corporations used for buybacks. Right. So the end consumer is not getting that in terms of wages. So they have to be putting that money on and their credit. Pim, we saw this uh, with Bank of America's earnings, uh, where they reported the best revenues from consumer credit lending uh, in years. And they're expanding in that area. And they said, you know, yeah, we are watching the credit quality of our borrowers. So far, it looks OK, but we are expanding because it's lucrative. But this is really interesting to me because yeah. if that, this is what you're saying is plugging the gap between uh, people's ability to buy these things because of an increase in, in wages or right. a lack thereof, yeah. um, you just have to wonder. People are living on their credit cards. Yes. I, mean, I mean, that's what they do. And you tell me that you know this kind of shopping is almost psychologically essential, right? I mean, it ha they have to do it because the, the deals are so great. You need that other flat panel television. Right. And all you got to do is look at the mail or the post that you receive. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I, if I had a penny for every offer right. yes. uh, for new credit cards, I am Absolutely. shocked by but, the volume yeah. that I've been receiving. Okay. Yeah. But I want to, I want to push back a little bit because uh, consumers were actually fairly prudent and, and U.S. consumers hadn't re-leveraged borrowing like auto loans for a number of years. Right. Are we reaching a threshold, a tipping point where you're starting to see greater releveraging and at a faster pace than we have in the past? I mean, it appears that way if you just look at the credit card data and you're seeing at the same time improvements in sales for many retailers or retail sales, but you're not seeing an increase in wages. So it, to me, it has to come from somewhere. So where else would it be coming from other than credit? Because 
necessities continue to rise. So I would imagine that most of the wages that you have would go to those things. First. And here, just to, just to give you, you know, not to, because uh, I mean, I know we're focused on retail sales, but right. it's also about, you know, what else you can do with the money. Right. We've all read these stories, but I mean, 42% of Americans have less than $10,000 tucked away for retirement. And there was an article recently that if a majority, many Americans, if there was an emergency where they needed like, thousand dollars in cash they wouldn't have it in their account and i think broader to this i mean you have to worry if we continue to have tariffs implemented on items as it moves to goods consumers purchase then the price of that is going to go up and you know that would impact also because again their wages aren't going up commensurate with the cost of goods Thank you very much. Setting us straight. Seema Shah, Bloomberg Intelligence, his own uh, senior consumer analyst, giving us the details on U.S. retail sales. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.